Well, the title of this morning's message is Morning into Joy. Morning into Joy. We're going to pick up in the Gospel of John and chapter 20. In our passage this morning, we hear the opening notes, if you will, of a of the crescendo, really, of John's gospel. This symphony that he has written about the Lord Jesus Christ is now coming to a close, and we see his life and his work coming to its culmination. And this is not only the crescendo of John's gospel, this is the crescendo, frankly, of the whole of the Christian faith. As we heard from 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, says, look, if Christ is not risen, then your faith is in vain. You're of all men most to be pitied. There's a cost to following Christ. Christianity stands or it falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this is why John picks up his pen to write. That you might be found here this morning. He's not writing to people in the past. He is writing to you this morning, personally. And he is writing that you might be found here today to hear these things and even to come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to this text this morning, which in my opinion is one of the most touching and uplifting passages in all of Scripture. We see the personal revelation of the risen Lord to Mary Magdalene, Mary who came from Magdala, We live in a world that denigrates women. Jesus dignifies women. The Bible dignifies women. God created women and holds them in high esteem. Nobody has done more for women than Jesus Christ and Christianity in general. And what a privilege it is that this woman is given the privileged position of being the first one to see the risen Christ. God does not do things the way we would so often do them. I want to recount this morning the events leading up to this encounter. You you remember that Jesus was crucified on Friday between the hours of noon and three, and he was buried and had to be buried before sundown on Friday. When the Sabbath began, and Nicodemus, you remember who came to Jesus at night, and you remember a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea who donated his personal tomb to Christ, along with a small entourage of women, came and removed Jesus from his cross, and they take that body then to the tomb where they will prepare him for burial. And as we come to our text this morning, It's very early, very early on Sunday morning. The day rises after what was undoubtedly a very restless night filled with agony and anxiety in the hearts of Jesus' followers. And after a very sorrowful Saturday Sabbath, a group of women have partnered together. And long before light, they rise from their beds and they gathered together and they are making their way to the tomb and they are very concerned because they were at the tomb when the stone was rolled in front of the tomb and they are troubled as to how they are going to get this stone up and out of the trench in which it was laid. We come to that section really in in John's account in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 20. And the scene here is focused on the tomb. You'll hear that word tomb over and over and over again in this section. And it's as if there were a surveillance camera, you're familiar with those, up above the tomb. And what we see unfolding, if you take all of the Gospels and put them together, is you see people coming and going. They're not all there at the same time. They don't arrive at the same time. They don't leave at the same time. And, and we get a picture here, as John unfolds it, of Mary at the tomb. 
We don't know whether Mary, though she was part of this group of women, we don't know whether she actually started with them and somehow got ahead of them or whether she is coming from a different location. But whatever the case, Mary Magdalene is the first one at the tomb. She preceded all the others. There's been a strong earthquake, Matthew tells us, And upon arriving at the Lord's tomb, Mary looks, and that massive stone that was so problematic to them was no problem at all. An angel had moved it and thrust it out of the furrow in which it was rolled. And Mary looks in the tomb and assumes that Jesus' body has been stolen. And she is so distressed by what she sees that she immediately breaks out running to go get Peter and John. Let's pick up in chapter 20 and verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Now you may wonder why those asterisks are in your Bible around those verbs. All of those asterisks are telling us that these are a historical present. John is really writing this to draw us into the scene. In other words, it would read this way. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb early while it is still dark sees the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she runs and she comes to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and says to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb, and the two were running together, and the other disciple, this is John referring to himself, ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first, and stooping in and looking in, he sees the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also comes following him, and it enters the tomb and sees the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but folded up in a place by itself. And so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And so the disciples went away again to where they were staying. disciples have left. Mary Magdalene was somehow trailing behind Peter and John and they have left and now she comes back to the tomb. She's back to where she started the morning. And frankly, I don't think you can overstate it. She is shattered. She is utterly despondent. She is disconsolate. No one can comfort her. And the account we have is particular to John And I'm so thankful that John, by the Spirit, allows us into this episode. Let's pick up with Mary in verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And so as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they say to her, woman, Why are you crying? And she says to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and sees Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus says to her, woman, why are you crying? Whom are you seeking? Thinking him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus says to her, Mary. She turned and she says to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus says to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene comes announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. 
Lord, that great question that you asked of Martha preceding the raising of her brother Lazarus after you declared, I am the resurrection and the life. Lord, you took that statement and drove it straight home and asked her, do you believe? Lord, I pray this morning that you would take these words and by your spirit you would make them alive, that you would help people to see, help us to see that this is not simply some story conjured up in antiquity, but Lord, this is the truth, that you are the resurrection and the life and that these things in fact happened and that all that you promise has happened and will happen just as you've said. Lord, help us to take these things to heart, and we pray that you would open the eyes of the blind and encourage those who know you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I want to hang this text on three nails this morning, and I want you to see and look with me first at Mary's unnecessary sorrow in verses 11 to 15, her unnecessary sorrow. Notice the text tells us that as Mary comes back to the tomb, she was standing outside the tomb crying. In contrast to Peter and John who have fled from the scene to go and to tell others, Mary instead is alone and she is utterly alone. Or so she believes at the tomb of Jesus. And the text tells us that she's outside, on the outside looking in and she is crying, and this word for crying is too tame. She is weeping. She is in unrestrained sobbing. Mary is uncontainable and audible in her grief, in the way you are when people die, people you love. This is the same word that was used for the loud wailing at Lazarus' tomb, and frankly, it's the focal point of this section. We find it in verse 11, verse 13, verse 15. Mary is wailing. She is distraught, and she is heaving in sorrow. And every word of this section emphasizes the fact that Mary has completely lost it. This was her Lord. She loved Jesus. And this has been the longest and worst weekend of her life. One could argue perhaps that no one has been more passionate about Christ than this precious woman. And frankly, it's not hard to understand. Mary Magdalene, prior to Christ, was a miserable woman. She was a woman with a sordid and sinful past. Jesus had set her free from satanic oppression, from possession, frankly. She did not just have the presence of a demon living within her, but Jesus set her free from seven demons which he cast out of her. And we dare not rush past that. None of us knows what it would have been to be under the domination and the torment of those demonic forces. None of us understands what it was for this woman to be under the oppression and the power of the devil. Mary knew what it was to be burdened and living a life of sinfulness and depravity and wickedness beyond anything perhaps you have ever known. You've seen perhaps people on the street that have provoked you to pity because you've, you've seen them in their miserable state, uttering to themselves, muttering to themselves, shrieking perhaps in terror. You've seen the pictures in the New Testament of those who were possessed by demons. Mary was possessed by seven. She was so utterly dependent and grateful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ had done for her 
what no doctor could do, what no pastor could do, what no priest could do. She knew him as the source of her deliverance from demons and also from sin. And the gratitude in her heart was immense. And she followed Jesus. She helped support Jesus' ministry financially. She served him, according to Matthew 27, 56, as a minister to him. Jesus meant a lot to a lot of people. But he was everything to Mary. She had left her home and all of her possessions to go wherever Christ went. She accompanied him along the arduous path to the cross. She was there, perpetually there, there at the mock trials, there at the beating, there at the crucifixion. It was a sort of where's Waldo, where's Mary? She was just always in the scene somewhere you could find her. And at the cross, we see her beginning at a distance, and by the time Christ is in the throes of his suffering, she is right next to him as he bears the weight of sinners. In all likelihood, she was a helping hand as Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus' body, his lifeless body, off the cross Luke tells us that she followed Joseph and Nicodemus as they took the body to the tomb and she saw where they laid him with her own eyes. She then saw that great stone rolled against the entrance to the tomb. She then saw the Romans seal that stone. She had anointed Christ and brought the burial perfumes and she had gone with the other women to purchase more spices that they might apply them then. But they had to wait until after the Sabbath. And so she, in her emotional upheaval, awaits an agonizing Sabbath. It was roughly 36 hours before Mary was able then to get back to the one whom she loved She arises before daylight and she begins to make her way to the tomb this Sunday morning. And now she's distraught because things have gone from bad to worse. Christ, the only one she cares about, ultimately, the one she loves, is gone. This, of course, is a a terrible thing. Her comfort is no comfort at all and she comes alone and she does not know what to do and when you're in that situation, what do you do but break down and she comes completely apart at the seams. Jesus' tomb was the only place that she can think to be and in this sense, Mary, frankly, serves as an example for us, an excellent example. She is in upheaval. She is distressed. She is facing the wind and the rain and the, tor- the, 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 the torment of the, of the, of the storm is, is blowing hard. She's perplexed and she's disappointed, but she does not go away from Christ Rather, she goes to him. And beloved, we pointed this out many times when going through the Psalms, that what you see in the great men and women of faith in the scriptures is that they have learned to comfort their souls in God. It is not that their trials are fewer than others. In fact, you might argue that the godliest people in scripture encountered more difficulties than most. But what you find in the heat of the moment, what you find in the trial, is that they go to the Lord. They go toward God in trial. So many people are let down when life gets hard and they go the other way. Mary had placed her hope in Christ and she had served him 
loyally and devoted her time and her energy and her wealth, and she had given her heart and her very soul to Christ, and now Christ is dead, and undoubtedly this thing has gone up in flames, and there are all kinds of questions about the things that Jesus claimed. There are all kinds of questions about the way this has all sort of come to an end. This is a situation that's ripe for people to say that, you know what, God has, God has really let me down. This is a situation ripe for resentment and for bitterness and for sorrow and for disappointment and for discouragement and for turning away from Jesus because he did not fulfill my hopes and yet it is to Jesus that she goes. This is, this is Mary's moment like, like Peter had. You remember when Jesus says, you're not going to leave too, are you? And Peter says to him, what? Lord, to whom shall we go? You're the one. You have the words of eternal life. There is no other place to turn. And so Mary here goes to the tomb. It's all she knows. It's all she loves. It's all she wants. And in spite of her questions, Mary knew this much. Jesus was merciful. And Jesus was kind. And he had forgiven her and he had powerfully delivered her from the devil and he had given her new life and she loved him and the questions bothered her, yes, but what, what captivated her heart was the one whom she loved. It's been rightfully said, we should never doubt in the darkness what is believed in the light. And Mary believed in Christ. And in spite of her perplexity, she could be nowhere else other than by her beloved Lord. Verse 11. It says that she was standing outside the tomb crying, and so as she was crying... She stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And Mary stoops to look in because the entrance to the tomb was low so that that stone could cover the entrance. But by stooping in and looking in inside this tomb, you'll remember that these tombs were carved into the limestone. And you'd go through the entrance, and then a, a large area had been hollowed out with some, some bunks, if you will, some, some platforms, some ledges that were cut into the sides of the wall so that Joseph, presumably, and his family could then occupy, when, when the time came, these, these ledges. And she looks into this burial chamber, and perhaps she looks just to make sure she, she got it right. We don't know. But what's intriguing is she is so overwhelmed with grief that she does not even seem to recognize the two angels that are seated at the either end of where Jesus was laid. And we don't know why she doesn't recognize the angels. It may be that her, her eyes are so swollen and filled with tears she just assumes them to be men. They have taken on a human form. In Mark 16, 5, one of the angels is described in appearance as a young man. Perhaps she was divinely prevented from recognizing them. Maybe she did recognize them as angels, but the normal response of fear was absent because she just more or less didn't care too much anymore about any of that. She was grieved to the point of apathy. It's the way Luther apparently took it. He, he says, quote, no man so, is so brave-hearted that he would not be terrified to behold an angel, and yet Mary's heart is completely elsewhere. And so these angels pose a question, and she hears them in plain Hebrew, I assume, and she, she just has a conversation with them. Verse 13, and they said to her, woman, why are you crying? 
Now that word woman, we hear it and we hear something disrespectful. That's not at all what it was. It was a very respectful greeting, normal greeting, when a man spoke to a woman. But beloved, these angels are not looking for information from Mary. Not at all. This question is meant to challenge Mary. It, it, is, it is not the sympathetic expression of compassion. This is a question that's aimed at her to confront her in her panicked state. It's the kind of question we have all asked our children when they're melting down over something relatively petty or premature. We say to them, why are you crying? Right? And then we tell them if they don't stop it, we're going to give them something to cry about. Right? We've all said it. I don't think these angels finished with that tagline, but they're driving at the same thing. Why are you crying? This question is a gentle rebuke to Mary. Woman, why, why are you crying? You have no reason. This is all so unnecessary. You have no reason to be weeping. And Mary just completely misses the message. And amidst her sobs, she lets out, lets out one of those, those sort of faltering answers, and she, she takes their question at face value, and she gives them a because. Because they have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. And my friend, can I ask you, do you have that kind of heart for Christ? Would you have been there before dark or before light? Would you have been there by yourself without the masses? Would you have been there possessed with that same kind of heart that could encounter an angel and simply answer in a straightforward fashion because they've taken my Lord is it that personal for you? Is Jesus that precious to you? Are you that loyal? Are you that devoted? Or is Jesus just a figure of ancient history and some distant idea and concept and sort of hope that you have that maybe maybe what's said in the Bible is true? Do you see that there was a relationship between Mary and Jesus that he was precious to her? And as we shall see that Mary was precious to Jesus, this is a real relationship. This is a living thing. No dead doctrine. And Mary's answer, frankly, is nothing but the truth from her vantage point. This is why she weeps, because she thinks someone has taken her Lord. And yet it is a faulty assumption. And so in one sense, Mary's tears are very legitimate, aren't they? They're valid. She loved much, therefore she weeps much. This was her Lord, and it is normal, and it is right, and it is good to grieve. Grieving is a gift of God when we lose in this broken world those whom we love. Anyone who is loved and lost knows the pain and the anguish of Mary. So in one sense, it's not only right for Mary to grieve, but it's beautiful that she grieves like this because it reveals the depth of her love for Christ. And yet, in another sense, her tears are completely unnecessary. And I say this with all kinds of compassion for Mary as a weeper myself. I get it. 
But Mary's face is hopeless and her eyes are puffy and they are filled with tears and she is not seeing well physically. But she is also not seeing well spiritually. Mary is not mourning according to the truth. She's wound up around the axle about all kinds of things that are not so. And again, we can have compassion for her in the midst of this. Indeed, we fall into this pattern ourselves. But she is distraught and spiraling over the death and disappearance of one who is both alive and about to appear to her. And all that appears so tragic and everything seems so out of control. And frankly, beloved, listen, it's neither tragic nor out of control. It's exactly the opposite of that. It is wonderful. And everything's working according to plan. But she does not have the eyes to see it. And yet she should. Jesus had repeatedly spoken of his death and resurrection. She had heard it time and time and time again. You can trace it out in the book of Mark, chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. Jesus keeps telling them, this is what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered over. They are going to crucify me. They are going to bury me. And I will on the third day rise again from the dead. He had told them over and over and over and over, and Mary doesn't get it. And so in a sense, while her grief is understandable given what she sees, in another sense it is a faithless and forgetful sorrow. For Mary, all of this is dark, every bit of it is miserable, everything is loss and defeat and discouragement. And she's wrong. And in this sense, Mary stands as an example for us as well, though not an excellent example. This is an example of what not to do when the storm clouds come into your life. She is panicked and she is falling apart. And she does not factor what she knows into what she's feeling. Mary is distraught in a moment that ought to be the very cause for joy. She's so undone in her grief that she cannot see the hand of God. And yet, if the hand of God, if the fingerprints of God have ever been on anything in this life, it is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mary's weeping is not a according to truth. It is too excessive and too premature and too forgetful of God and the promises of Christ. And beloved, we should learn from her that when we are spiritually disappointed, when, when we are disillusioned, when what we thought was going to happen and how we expected it all to pan out doesn't in fact pan out that way, when the whole house comes collapsing down, we don't panic We preach to ourselves. We don't listen to ourselves. And we engage that discouragement with the truth of God's word. God has spoken, and we take it to heart. We take ourselves to task like the psalmist who says to his own soul, why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him the help of my countenance and my God. That's a right heart. We remind ourselves that this is the one who works all things together for good to them that love him and are called according to his purpose. We remind ourselves that this is the God who holds the power of life and death and that no one dies apart from God's will. We build ourselves up in our most holy faith and we lean earnestly into his promises. Listen, temporary mourning is okay. There is a time to weep. But we must learn to take our tears to Christ for comfort, to the Lord who is, in fact, the help of our countenance, who lifts our head so that we encounter the agony of this life, the, the, 
the things that cause us so much emotional anguish, we, we bring them to God himself, trusting him that he's in control and that he knows what's happening, that all of it is working according to plan. And we weep at his feet, but we weep with hope. Beloved, listen, grief for the believer is never the end of the story. Never. And Mary thinks it's all over. She's about to learn otherwise. Jesus wants to comfort her. Don't miss that. Verse 14, when she had said this, she turned around, and the Greek tells us that she turned all the way around. In other words, she was stooping in to look inside the tomb. She hears something. Perhaps the angels who were in there looked. Perhaps they bowed to Jesus. Perhaps she just heard Jesus step on a twig. Whatever it was, she turns completely around, and she sees Jesus standing there and does not know that it was Jesus. And again, we have no idea why Mary didn't recognize him. Again, it could have been the cloudiness of her vision. She might have been prohibited like the disciples on the road to Emmaus to understand who this was. It may have been that Jesus' resurrected body had looked different from the last images she had of him as she took him from the cross. One thing that's for certain, there was not one ounce, there was not one brain cell that even began to encounter the notion that somehow this man is Jesus raised from the dead. She had no hope and expectation of that whatsoever. Jesus was dead and she knew it. And so she turns around in verse 15, again, John with the historical present draws us right into the moment. And Jesus says to her, woman, why are you crying? Sounds strangely familiar, doesn't it? We've heard that question before. Jesus gives Mary the same gentle rebuke. Mary, why the tears? And Jesus doesn't stop where the angels stopped. He comes in with a second question. He's going to take her thinking a step further, and he says to her, whom are you seeking? Mary's not seeking a whom. Mary's seeking a what? Mary's not looking for someone. She's looking for something. She's not looking for a body uh, a, a person living, she's looking for a body laying. She, she is, again, in another world. She is completely detached from reality. Jesus gently directs her attention to the error of her thinking, but she's so fixed on what she knows to be true. The Lord is dead, and he's been carried off, and that's all there is to it. And so verse 15 Thinking him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. It's reasonable enough. Joseph's tomb was a garden tomb. It was a beautiful place, and she thinks Jesus to be the gardener. Who else would you expect at that hour of the morning? And she is hoping, you'll note back in verse, uh, verse 2, that when Mary comes to Peter and to, to John, she says, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. She's probably thinking about the enemies of the Lord. But here, she doesn't really know who's done it, and she wonders if maybe this gardener may have taken him away. She asks him where she might find it so that she can care for it. She just says, look, wherever it is, look, I... No questions asked. I, I just want to know where that body is, that I might be with Christ, that I might care for him. What a tender treasure this is. Jesus didn't have to do this, did he? He could have let Mary find out some other way.
And yet the Lord comes to alleviate her sorrow and to turn her mourning into joy. We saw this in the book of Philippians, what? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. Why? The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. Why? Because the Lord is near. And the Lord is near to Mary, and she doesn't know it. And beloved, the Lord is never any further from you in your sorrow, in your trials, in your difficulties than he is from Mary at this moment. In fact, he's closer because he dwells what? Within us by his spirit. How concerned the Lord is for the peace of his people, for the comfort of his people. How concerned the Lord is that we not be filled with fear and fainting and all kinds of of, of tears and sorrow, but rather that we would rejoice and rest in him. You see the heart of Christ in one of the most tender scenes of all of Scripture. We've seen Mary's unnecessary sorrow. Let's look secondly at, at Mary's irrepressible joy as we look at this tender scene. Verse 16, Jesus says to her, Mary, and she turned and she said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. In an instant, the veil that hung over Mary's face, the, the, the thing, whatever it was that was clouding her vision, it all falls away and she sees her Lord standing before her. Within one word, Mary has gone from the lowest place on earth to the heights of heaven. Her distress and her discouragement are washed away with a word, Miriam. She knew. Her deepest grief is turned to her greatest joy. One word and the one who is crushed in faith is now restored and refreshed in faith. Dear friends, this is the power of the word of Christ. If you are in Christ this morning, he calls out his own by name. Somewhere along the way, spiritually, he has, you know something of this. Where you did not see and you did not understand and you, you were not concerned about your soul or your sin or, or the, the, the hauntings of a future judgment. But Jesus came to you, didn't he? And though you did not hear it audibly, you knew it. You knew it. And the scales fell from your eyes. And here, Mary sees what she cannot believe, and yet she cannot help but believe. How powerful is the word of Christ, that word which spoke the universe into being, spoke it into being, everything that is. That word that's healed the sick, that word that stilled the storm, that word that mightily summoned Lazarus up and out after four days in the tomb, that voice which brings forth his own to faith and salvation. God does all of these things by the power of his word, and she knows the voice of her shepherd, and with a word she goes from the lowest point in her light, life to the, to the heights of human delight. This is like a, a gentle, sobering slap across Mary's face. It's, it's Jesus, in effect, taking Mary by the shoulders and saying, Mary, stop. Look at me. And she does. And she sees him. And she understands. She understands this much. Wherever her heart had been and all of those worries and concerns that she's had for the past week, now all of a sudden all that is gone. Jesus is here and it's okay and she doesn't need any further explanation. She just shrieks, Rabboni. 
And again, beloved, it's so easy to hear these things and to just go, well, yeah, I've, I've heard that story before in Scripture. I know that Christians believe in the resurrection. In fact, I, I think I believe in it too. And, and I know this, this happened and that happened. No, stop. You think of the last funeral you attended with the child that you lost or the father who passed away or your brother who was tragically killed in an accident. You think about being graveside. Everybody's left. You go back to shed one more tear. You go back to lay down. You go back to lay down in that tomb. Something you would not dare to do. In the midst of everybody being there, you're sobbing, you're broken, it's all over. You have lost them. Miriam, and your loved one is standing before you. Imagine that joy. Imagine the speechlessness of that moment. This is impossible. This is unbelievable. And in Mary's heart, this is wonderful. And she just throws her arms around Christ and she clings to him like she will never again let him out of her sight. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. And that sounds harsh of Jesus, but it is not harsh. He is not saying to Mary, look, Mary, quit touching me. It's okay to touch the resurrected Christ. We know that physically because the other women who accompanied Mary, according to Matthew 28, took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. And Thomas, as you know, later in this very chapter will be invited to take his hand and to reach and to, to touch his hands and to touch his side. The problem is that Mary is clinging to Jesus. She is so overwhelmed with the reality of the risen Lord whom she loves, she did not want to let go and she's got him in a death grip. And so Jesus gives her yet another gentle rebuke and a reminder that things are not now what they were before. You see, in Mary's heart, there is an anticipation that this is just like old times. This is going to be good. And Jesus says, in effect, Mary, look, don't hang on too tightly because I cannot stay. I'm here, yes, but remember, I have to go to the Father. The days of my humiliation are over, and I am now ascending back to my Father, back to my exalted place. Jesus is so full of truth and grace, isn't he? So gentle and so compassionate, so considerate, he knows her heart, and he tells her, Miriam, you, you cannot have what you're hoping for. It's better than that, frankly. But you cannot have what you're hoping for, and I will not be here with you in person for very much longer, and you, you, you may not continue to cling to me as though you're never going to have to go through that physical separation again. That physical separation will occur, in fact, it'll occur in about 40 days. Jesus forever puts on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And he always spoke the truth, always, and yet he was always conscious of a person's frame. He spoke that truth as people need that truth, and we would do well to imitate his example to the best of our abilities, that the Lord would make us sensitive 
to have the kinds of words that Christ himself had that could restore the broken. To the Pharisees, Jesus was hard and he spoke sharp-edged words because that's what they needed in love. And to Mary, he speaks words to her appropriate to her tender disposition and to Timothy, words to him that, that, that are that are comforting in the midst of the weakness of his own faith. And to Peter, he's going to speak words of grace and acceptance and restoration. We need to be like Jesus. And he's going to send Mary on a mission. He says to Mary, I want you to get up and I want you to go. Look at verse 17. Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father But, Mary, go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. These are significant words, beloved. These are are unbelievable words. Jesus here refers to his disciples as his brothers. Where are these brothers, by the way? They're cowering in some upper room, terrified to make any sort of public association with Christ because if they do that, they may end up on a cross of their own. And they had pledged, oh, they had pledged. They had pledged it boldly. They had pledged it loudly. They had announced to one another and to the world and to Jesus himself, I will never, ever, ever forsake you, even if it costs me my life. Talk about circumstances that are ripe for offense. These men had failed Christ, but mark the response of our Lord to these men. His first thought is for them. He's got a task for Mary. He wants Mary to go to his brethren. And he wants them to come to him so that he might bind up their wounds and might restore them and might encourage them. He's concerned about them because they must be so broken over their failure. He even makes a special appearance to the downtrodden Peter. Look at his words, in fact, to those disciples as he goes to gather with them later this same night in verses 19 and 20. So while it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and while the doors were shut and the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, How dare you? How dare you abandon me in my hour of need? First you sleep in the garden, and now... In the moment when you, so you all professed to me that you were going to be there, you were going to stand firm, what a letdown. It doesn't say that. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace. Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them. They had to be astonished. He didn't walk through the door. He, well, walked through the door. You know what I mean? And, and he, he, he comes to them, and he, he, he knows they're going to be astonished. And in his kindness and his mercy, he shows them his hands and his side. And the disciples then look at it. They rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And so Jesus said to them again, Peace. Be with you. You see the heart of Christ towards sinners. Oh, have you failed him? Me too. But do you see the heart of Jesus for those who fail him? Do you see the heart of Christ for the faithless, for the weak and for the frail, Do you see that he redeems the rebellious and he accepts the weak and he restores the backslider and he loves the deserter? There is no prolonged tongue lashing. There is no silent treatment in an attempt to emotionally punish them. 
There's no averting of his eyes. There's, there's no suspicion. There's no hesitation on Christ's part to love them. They see him and they see his posture toward them and they rejoice. Like the father and the prodigal son, here is this outgoing, the one who's been offended, the one who's been sinned against, this one going out and toward and eagerly embracing, and could we say it, that he's even impatient to forgive them. He wants to extend to them that for which they have not asked, not at this point. And then, beloved, he speaks these words. It wasn't just that Jesus was not hard on them, but Jesus says, look, you're my brethren. You're an adopted child of God. All that cross work and the fact that I'm out of this empty tomb, that was all by the design of God that I might reconcile you to God to bring you into the household of God. You are my brothers. And beloved, that is his frame towards you if you know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. He sees your failings. He knows them. He knows them better than you do. You have more than you know. And he sees your frailty. And yet this morning by his blood and his resurrection, he would declare to you peace. Peace be with you. I'm, f I'm favorable toward you. I love you. You are my brethren. Jesus says, you go tell them I ascend. And, and, and this is all language that we find out in other gospels. He, he actually tells them, look, we're going to, he, he tells them, pull out your GPS, boys. Here are the ways, waypoints. We're all going to meet here by the sea, and they know it. They're going to go to Galilee, and they're going to see him again. And Jesus says to them, look, I, you go tell them, Mary, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. This is the language of the resurrection. Jesus, you'll note, does not say, I ascend to our Father and our God. There is a distinction. And we share in this family relationship because we are in Christ who reconciled us to God. And the Father is Father to Christ by nature. He is father to us by grace. This is why Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children heirs, also heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. Well, Mary's joy leads her finally and thirdly to Mary's glad obedience. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Mary is given a, a commission by Christ, and she is submitted to Jesus as her master, and gladly and enthusiastically she obeys again the, the historic presence here that, that Mary came uh, uh, announcing, they're not past tense, they're, they're present and, and they, they speak to the eagerness and the enthusiasm that Mary has. She was coming apart at the seams at one point and now she's just out of her mind with gladness. She is beside herself and she comes announcing to them all that she has seen and that is in a perfect tense, meaning I've seen it with an image that remains in my mind's eye. I've seen it and I'll never forget it. Oh, this is the heart of those who've been with Christ. This is the heart of those who are devoted to Christ. They don't care, frankly, if they seem out of their mind. They know and they need to make it known. And beloved, we are the same way. May this day be a new day for you in testifying to the death and resurrection of the Savior of the world, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and there are people who need to know it, people who've never darkened the door of a church, people who've never encountered this text. How will they know without a preacher? Jesus sent Mary, 
and she is so eager to speak, she cannot retain, restrain her tongue. And Jesus is not a, a mere doctrine to her, not a mere conviction which she holds. Jesus is alive, she has seen him, and he has spoken gracious words, and she can't wait to convey them to others. And Mary's joy just spills over into glad obedience and Christian testimony. Why has John written these things to you this morning? If you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, I will tell you this, he has written these things to you for your encouragement. That your heart may again be strengthened even this morning to believe on him still more and to trust him still more and to delight in him still more to find your rest and your joy and your hope in Christ still more, that you might be reminded again that the grave and death and sin has been overcome. It is finished. Somebody wisely said that the resurrection was God the Father's amen to the Son's it is finished. It was the stamp of approval that Christ's sacrifice was indeed sufficient and accepted. And therefore we are justified by faith in him. John wrote these things that you might relish in the reality that he calls you brother. John wrote these things to you that you might delight in the reality that you've been reconciled through the all-sufficient blood of a, of a perfect and unblemished lamb and that you are now adopted and in the household of God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and this sermon would never end if I kept talking forever because that's how long it will be. He wrote these things so that you might see Christ who is merciful and kind who does not hate you and is not disappointed in you because of your failings but instead calls you to peace. J.C. Ryle writes these words, quote, let us leave this passage with the comfortable reflection, I love that, with the comfortable reflection that Jesus never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as he dealt with his erring disciples in the morning of his resurrection, so he will deal with all who believe and love him until he comes again. When we wander out of the way, he will bring us back. When we fall, he will raise us again. The saints in glory will have but one anthem, which every voice will sing, and it is this. He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. End quote. Perhaps you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus of whom this passage speaks. And you cannot say, as Mary said, that Jesus is your Lord. John wrote these things especially for you. If you'll indulge me one more verse, take a look over at chapter or, uh, verse 30 of the same chapter. John 20 and verse 30, therefore many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these have been written, note this, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you might have life in his name. This is the kind intention of the Lord Jesus Christ even toward rebels, in that he gave himself on a cross to pay for the sins of all who would hope in him. And he did that so that you might not perish, that you might not be judged and spend eternity in torment in hell. He did that that he might rescue you from that and reconcile you to God so that you might know the glory and the wonder of being part of the household of God, being in God's family, reconciled and right with God, that you might know peace, that you might know joy, that you might know life and the glories of heaven forevermore. 
And the question is this morning, will you come to the risen Christ for life? Many, perhaps most, the Bible says that the the way that leads to destruction is broad and there are many on it. Listen, if you're on the road, get off the road. The end is not good. And Jesus is God's peace offering to you. Your sins paid for by him. If you will but repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you say, he would never accept me. And I remind you again of one of the main characters of all that we, we just listened to. Mary, consider her. Could you get more wretched than that, frankly? Seven demons. I don't know how much closer to hell you can get. And all the un- undoubtedly, all the, all the wickedness that went along with it, she, she was demonic in the truest sense of the word, and yet here she is, the privileged one who sees Christ first. Could it be that Christ is that gracious, that he would forgive you that many sins, that many blasphemies, all your attitude and your proud rejection of him? Could it be that Christ is that merciful? He is, but you must come. It is not for the self-righteous that Jesus came to save, but for sinners. And you've had a snapshot this morning of the compassion of Christ, and he will deal with you accordingly if you'll just come. Jesus gives life, and if you'll come to him for life, he will forgive your sins. You place your hope in him, you will not be disappointed, the scriptures testify to that and I tell you my friend your life will never be the same ever just as Mary's was never the same oh Lord you are risen indeed we see the empty tomb and by faith Lord you have opened our eyes to the truth of Christ crucified and risen from the dead Lord, we have peace with God. We have the joy of Christ. We have the hope of eternal life. We have everything because of you. We thank you for your mercy and your compassion. We thank you, Lord, for your heart's deep concern for your people. We thank you that you are not a hesitant Savior, but a willing one who looks with favor upon his people and eagerly anticipates the day when we will rejoice together around your table. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for this fruit that is before me of your power to save. Lord, may we go today in joy and in confidence and in great hope, for you have risen from the dead. Amen. John speaks these words in Revelation chapter 1. Actually, Jesus speaks them. John had fallen at Jesus' feet as a dead man. Jesus places his right hand on him saying, Do not, what? Fear. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever and I have the keys of death and Hades. Beloved, go in peace. Christ is risen. He has risen indeed.